We're all using the same ingredients, but the difference is the implementation and how that is, is, is managed. I could have the recipe from a Michelin-starred restaurant and I couldn't produce their food, nor would I want to. Machine learning, for us at least, it means having an amount of adaptability within the quantities and relative quantities of the ingredients that we use within our recipe. I want to start today's episode a bit differently by acknowledging you as a loyal listener to my podcast because it's been a while since I was able to publish an episode and often a period of silence makes people forget and move on to other media outlets. So let me just say I really do appreciate you sticking with me and accepting that I'm not a professional podcaster who can turn out a new episode every week. And tuning into today's episode, which I'm sure you will enjoy as much as I did when recording it. There is a wealth of information being shared. I also wanted to let you know that during the time where I was not recording, I have instead published a few ebooks, which you can get for free on the toptradersonplug.com website. But stay with me for now for today's interview and grab the ebooks a little bit later. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence and courage you need to invest like or invest with one of the top traders in the world. It is the stories you never get to hear set out as the most honest and transparent account that I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world. Today you're listening to episode 87. If this is the first episode you heard, you might want to go back and listen to all the earlier conversations. But before we find out who's on today's show, I wanted to mention that today's podcast is brought to you by the Eurex Exchange. And given all the market talk at the moment about rate hikes, you may find some useful ways of hedging your portfolio risk if you visit the Eurex website. This is Andrew Baxter. I'm the CIO and co-founder of Cambridge Capital Management, and you're listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks for doing that, Andrew. And by the way, if you want to read the full transcript of today's episode, just visit the toptradersunplugged.com website and sign up to receive access to all of them. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. You're very welcome, Niels. It's a pleasure. Good. Now, today's conversation, I think, will be really interesting for a large part of my audience who are either professional fund managers or allocators to hedge funds, or perhaps on the other side of the spectrum, I believe we have a large group of people listening who 
would like to become a fund manager themselves or managing their own investments. And what's really exciting about our conversation is that you can kind of speak to both part of the spectrum. And for those who may not have come across you before, you have in fact been running a billion dollar plus portfolio before founding CCM, where at the moment at least you are managing a somewhat smaller portfolio. But we will of course get into all of this. I just wanted you, the listener, to know that it'll be worthwhile sticking around and learning from Andrew's wealth of experience. But before we jump into all of this, I just have a simple question that I try to ask all my guests in order to appreciate the many different answers that you get uh, to this question. It basically goes, if you meet someone who don't know you and they ask what you do, how do you respond to them? How do you explain what you do? Good question. Well, I'm an engineer. I use my skills and experience and apply that in the world of investment management. Um, I build portfolios of assets to generate an investment return. When to buy, when to sell, how much of each asset to buy or sell is based on forecasts that we generate of the future movement of those asset prices. And those forecasts are generated using quantitative models written in computer code. There we are. Thanks very much. Now, before we go on to the usual questions, I want to try something a bit unconventional uh, with you, because I asked you, as I do with everyone, um, if you could send me a brief bio. And usually I re- what I receive is, is, to be frank, pretty standard. It's very factual, um, but they don't show a lot of creativity, if I can call it like that. However, what you sent me was very different. It was like reading the beginning of a book and um, so if you don't mind, I would love for you to share this creative bio and read it to our audience as if you're reading it to your children with the passion and excitement that comes with that. Because as you know, people don't remember PowerPoint presentations very well, but they do remember stories. So are you up for this, Andrew? Yes, thank you for the opportunity, Niels. It wasn't with this intent when I wrote these words. It was to give you an opportunity to get inside my head and understand my journey. But if you think that's useful to your listeners, I'm very happy to Absolutely. Do Let's open up your mind to uh, everyone. So I'm going to give the floor to you. And why don't you just read what you sent me? Thank you. So I'm an engineer. I always have been. I still consider myself to be as such. Uh, I happen to apply those skills in the world of investment management. Um, I read engineering at University of Cambridge and spent five years at British Aerospace Military Aircraft, 10 years in complex derivatives market making and risk management, and the last 10 years in quantitative investment management. Uh, And at CCM, we built our firm from first principles, and this is my story, uh, from engineering to investment management. Uh, I've always had a passion for problems, how things work, building things. Uh, and when I was young, I was always taking things apart to understand how they worked, hopefully putting them back together correctly. And before the world of computers, uh, I was building electronic circuits, soldering irons. Uh, and then computers came along and was, was programming those early computers in, I guess, when they hit the home market in, in, in 1980 in the UK. Um, I built remote controlled aircraft uh, from, from plans, paper plans and, and sheets of balsa wood. Um, I had a passion for flight and would have loved to be able to fly fast jets in, uh, in, in the military, but short sightedness put, put pay to that. Um, but I pursued this passion for engineering and went to Cambridge University where I read engineering and followed my fascination of flight 
by joining Brashera Space in their military aircraft division here in, in the UK. And at that time, that was probably the nearest thing we had in, in the UK to what NASA is in the US, a technologically fantastically advanced uh, engineering opportunity. I worked at Brashera Space for five years and was involved in some really amazing research work. Um, we worked on complex computer models in those days. It was mainframes, but we were simulating combat scenarios. What is the optimal specification for a future aircraft? We work in an aircraft designed to be delivered some 25 years hence. Is it small, nimble, agile, difficult to detect on the radar combat aircraft, or is it a bigger aircraft that can carry bigger payloads, but has bigger engines, bigger fuel burn? These were the questions we were playing with. Um, it was an amazing place to work. We had post-Cold War uh, interceptor aircraft. We had the Lightning aircraft flying where I was based was the UK Flight Test Center. Um, we had aircraft flying. They could go from zero to 50,000 feet, 50% higher than where we fly in our 747 in less than 60 seconds. I did have the opportunity briefly to get hands-on with the aircraft we were building. And there's, there's bits of my work flying around somewhere in a cockpit in a military aircraft somewhere, somewhere in the world. Well, that was the 1990s. 1990 on was a period of rapid change. The Berlin Wall came down. And after five years at Brashera Space, I was asking myself, why are we building these aircraft? Who are we? Who's our enemy? And the timescales were very long. It was very difficult to have a real sense of the day-to-day -day contribution one was making. And I was drawn to BAE for that urgency and excitement and engineering challenge. And I guess that, that had disappeared somewhat. But I looked around and I saw innovation in the world of finance and, and derivatives in particular. And it was at that time I joined um, JP Morgan back in 94. Spent the first 10 years in currency derivatives at JP Morgan, Bank of New York, where I worked with the Susquehanna Investment Group, one of the very first, uh, I guess, first three uh, groups to come off the exchanges into the OTC market and bring with them the derivatives trading skills. Um, I joined Deutsche Bank, where I traded complex or exotic currency options, options where the, the final value is dependent on the path the underlying underlying instrument takes between trade date and, and, and exercise date. And I used my computing skills in building pricing models for these complex derivatives. You know, the, at the time, the theoretical price from Black and Scholes was well understood, but came with a lot of assumptions, assumptions which were not practical in the real world. And we had to transfer the theory to the practicalities of how do you price these complex derivatives? How do you incorporate the costs of hedging and risk management? and make them usable in the real world. And I wrote pricing algorithms that allowed the trading desk to deliver consistent tradable prices across a wide range of instruments, some 20 traders globally and 200 salespeople globally. It was an implementation of the theory problem. It was an engineering problem. I ran a complex, um, complex book, some 10,000 positions, everything from one day out to 10 years in this currency derivatives book. And it was a real challenge to uh, to manage manage this risk um you know derivatives is a is a solution it's a solution for the customer you know, some people will say derivatives are evil well they're not we all have derivatives you have insurance on your house or your car it's a derivative that pays out if something happens it's derived from some other event so we were delivering solutions to customers and now, our biggest market was was the US, and I moved to the US and spent two years in New York, 
with the North American clients, helping them access this world of, of currency derivatives. And it was there where I got to involved with the investment management business. So I spent two years with proprietary trading strategies that we were building on the desk and made them available to the ultra high net worth space in North America. And that got me thinking, this is a really interesting business. Derivatives were starting to mature. And I, it sowed the seed of an idea for me to build an investment management business. And when I returned to the UK at the end of my overseas placement, I had the opportunity to do that at HSBC. Well, at HSBC, we started with nothing. First guy through the door, I built trading models, I built a team, I built the business, the legal, the infrastructure, the whole framework to deliver our activity, liquidity aggregation from the exchanges, algo execution, and a sales and distribution channel. We were trading currencies, rates, equities, futures, over-the-counter foreign exchange. We trade equity statile models, some 6,000 um, cash equities in the portfolio. And over five years, and 1.8 billion dollars we'd raised and managed over that time, we were incubated, the business was built. We had great performance through 2007 and 8, and we proved the quality of our approach um, within challenging market conditions. We'd built the business and incubated in global markets. And we moved across to the investment management division. And for many people, that's hard. Um, there are many people in the investment management business who have a proprietary trading strategy. It works very well. But that's not an investment strategy. And for many people, they may have an investment strategy, but that's not a business or they don't have experience of how to build and run a business like that. Well, we, 13 of us, we'd proven we could build and run a business. And my baby had grown up, graduated investment management, and I left HSBC. And together with my CTO from, um, from HSBC business, Ian Brown, we co-founded Cambridge Capital Management. That was 2010, and it's been a long and, and steady build since then. We we launched and started trading three years ago, just uh, just this month. Uh, the numbers have been very good, and you know our philosophy is the one we've pursued. I've pursued throughout my career, applying engineering techniques um, and the control and understanding of risk to the investment management process. We seek the best proven approaches from all areas of investment management. We're not wedded to any particular idea or a particular style of a previous investment firm. As engineers, we expect the solution to be good enough, but not right. There's no right solution, particularly in finance, where the, the, the answer we're trying to solve is continuously, continuously adapting. Uh, we're not held back by having uh, a solution that's less than perfect. And many people from the hard sciences in particular find it difficult to move into the world of finance where there is no black or white, there's no right or wrong answer. Uh, and I think this is particularly appropriate for, or conducive to an engineer that is willing to accept something, accept something that's less than perfect. Um, we took investment technology from large-scale equity portfolio world, from the Statab techniques and techniques from engineering, signal processing, data analysis. We've been working closely with the University of Cambridge here and the engineering department for the last three or four years to transfer over some of the techniques which may be well understood and relatively mature in other problem domains, but are unknown in finance. I think this is a major edge for us, not the techniques themselves, 
but the willingness, the humility to appreciate that the techniques one uses today are not perfect. One needs to be continuously improve, revisit, and remain open-minded. What do we do? We harvest risk premia, the same risk premia that many CTAs and other managers harvest. Risk premia that are driven by macro factors. They're plentiful, they're persistent in the long run, and there's a wide variety of techniques to access those. We model those premia, we build forecasts, and we build risk-adjusted portfolios. We attempt in our approach to identify the failings in our approach, the risk, the shortcomings, the source of errors in the many layers of our systems. We measure that, we monitor, and we reduce where possible, and we manage that. We recognize the need for continuous improvement and the world around us changes, the techniques available improve, and our understanding of the problem improves. We iterate, 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 all within a process. We use technology to deliver that process and through a robust process, we deliver investment performance, better tools, process, understanding of the problem and management of the risk and uncertainty. We will have better outcomes. It's performance through process. That's my story. And I'm sure we'll drill down to that in more detail. We certainly will. We certainly will. Thanks ever so much. I mean, again, I I hope people... Um, just take note that sometimes when you do something that's a little bit different in the way you present yourself, it uh, it draws the attention of the person that you uh, you know that you want. So I, I thought that was a great way of uh, of doing a creative uh, bio. So you know, I said before that we'll you know go back and 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 revisit uh, some of the things, but it is quite comprehensive uh, in 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 some ways. So I just want to ask you sort of. More simply, when you look back at all the things you've done and that you just um, talked about to where you are today, where do you think you learned the most or where, where do you think you sort of took along most of the things that you found really useful for where you wanted to, to go today? Because it's such a broad background. I mean, from aircrafts to finance and how do you how do you frame that it's a broad background but there's some common threads we have a problem it happens to be an investment problem <laughs> we have a toolkit we have a toolkit of models we can build portfolios we can measure signals we can measure noise we can in the derivatives world when one's providing a hedge one's trying to reduce the risk on a single or a series of cash flows for a corporate investor one has a derivative risk manager or, or trader or structurer. One has a toolkit. It just happens to be a derivative cool toolkit that builds cash flows that behave in certain ways. You can put all those together in a package. You, the customer says, well, that's a little expensive. How can I reduce that? Well, if you is there any risks you're happy to take? I'm happy to take this risk. Well, in which case, we can reduce the cost of that package akin to insurance on your car. If you're willing to pay the first X yourself uh, as an excess, then your insurance is premium. It's, it's all building blocks and the investment management process is the same. We have markets. We need to try and understand what drives those markets. We then can try and model those markets. We need to recognize those models don't really work very well. They are an approximation to reality. Um, we need to understand why and in what way those models don't work. And then we can address that. And we can diversify away the risks that it's possible to diversify with. And for those risks that can't, we try and control them. 
know, in the world of derivative risk management, um, the theory says the price is X, but the reality is, is very different um, because the theory is conveniently phrased or constructed to ignore the um, the fact that markets, for instance, uh, don't trade continuously. They have jumps. The returns are not normally distributed. Uh, you're not hedging and da, 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 and so on. So in investment management, I think the thing that runs through to answer your question is um, it's an engineering problem. We have toolkit. We recognize the shortcomings. We measure and monitor those risks and we control them. Sure. Um, sure. No, I appreciate that. Now, I'm going to I'd like to talk about a bigger theme um, uh, that I, I would love to hear your uh, opinion about. But before we do that. You've obviously told us a lot about your background, but I just want to bring it up to today and I want to give the audience a chance also to get to know you a little better. And so before we dive into the technical part, just sort of very basically, you know, clearly being the CIO of, of, of Cambridge Capital is, 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 a, is a full-time job, no doubt. But what do you like to do outside the world of finance? Where, where do you, what, do you, what do you like doing when you're not working? For me, um, I, I've always... Love the outdoors, um, mountaineering, rock climbing, diving, skiing. I still love aviation. I have a pilot's license and I, and I, and I fly. Um, you know, I've recently discovered the world of cycling, which I think is, as I read recently, cycling is the new golf. It's uh, certainly in the UK. It's a, it's a very popular sport, and I'm sure that's helped by the success of the, uh, the Olympic squad in uh, and international cycling in recent years, but yeah. it's um, it's great. It's a it's a great activity for someone whose uh, knees aren't as young as they used to be. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, there's a theme there: outdoors, sure. mountaineering, climbing, and so forth. Fantastic. Now. I want to talk about machine learning or some people would say artificial intelligence. I mean, it's something that people nowadays, it's a term that they use more and more and, and in different industries, it means certain things and so on and so forth. But since we're going to touch upon that later, I just want to find out what does machine learning mean for you? Um, I mean, we've worked with, we've been working for the last three, four years with the professor of the machine learning group here at the University of Cambridge. And, and I guess, you know, one of the great things of working with the gentleman's name is Zubin Garamani, where the, the, the great things of working with Zubin and his team is we have access to a wide variety of ideas that fall under the, the brand, if you will, of machine learning. And there are lots of ideas and techniques. It's not one single, you know, one single algorithm. There's the, the, the right tool for a job. And often the challenge is finding which is the right tool for the job you're trying to do for the problem you're trying to solve. Sure. First of all, therefore, one needs to understand the problem itself and then find someone who understands the wide range of tools and their strengths and weaknesses and, and try and apply that tool. Um, I think there's many people who have had some exposure to machine learning and been disappointed. And there can be a variety of reasons for that. Often. I think it's because people have you know, maybe hired a PhD from a data science area, given them a problem to solve, and the result has been disappointing. Did they use the right tool? Did they model the data? Did they try and understand the problem? Um, and I think that's one of the challenges. 
there's if I can tell you a story, there's a very interesting um, there's a very interesting problem they have in their department, and it's it's a bit of a toy problem, but it's I think it's a good illustration. You know, in engineering, we're not limited by data. Because if you have a physical system, you're trying to build a better suspension system for a car. Every time you drive it around that racetrack, it behaves the same way on the same corner. And you can hone the suspension, the, the electronics, maybe that help that suspension work. In the same way, if you have any physical system, it's repeatable. The thing is, we're limited in finance to the data set that we have. And each day that goes by, we get a little bit more data. Um, also, the finance data is changing over time. You know, we only have to look back 10, 15 years ago, we had voice broking. Now we have machines making markets. So how far can you look back in the data? Um, also, your action in the market by trading influences potentially tomorrow's data and our competitors do the same. So in the lab, they have, they have a trolley that goes back and forward on a track. And beneath this trolley hangs a pendulum mm-hmm. and they have a machine. And they say to the machine, you know nothing about this. In actual fact, all you have is a camera. And the camera watches this trolley move around. And from the camera, you can see this pendulum. It has to recognize the image. It sees the pendulum. And your challenge, machine, is to balance the pendulum. Just like you would balance an umbrella on the palm of your hand by moving left to right, watching the tip of the umbrella, trying to keep it vertical. And it does the same with the trolley moving left to right. And this runs for hours upon hour upon hour, learning to initially swing the pendulum, get it past horizontal, get it vertically, and then keep it there. And when it's learned that, they add another pendulum to the bottom of the first pendulum and repeat. And given enough time, it will balance these pendulums. It has learnt, the machine has learnt, but it's not limited in data. And we can't do that in finance. We, one of the biggest, I think, challenges is taking techniques that require vast amounts of data data can often be very very noisy in fact what well, is very very noisy in fact sure, sure and we're limited in quantity and the failing is to learn the data one should learn the system that generates the data mm. so if you don't know what the system is it can just look like noise and a lot of people are putting data into machine learning techniques and they're just trying to fit noise and one of the big challenges is not to overfit think you have a solution and I've actually just learned the noise of the system itself rather than underlying drivers. Sure. Um, sure. So that is the challenge. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm also trying to sort of uh, apply this a little bit to, to the investors that you and other firms in the same field are, are sort of trying to, to attract. And I mean, I'm just thinking back on my own career and, you know, it stems predominantly from trend following and, I don't find that a particular difficult strategy to, you know, understand. I mean, you buy the highs and you sell the lows, which is opposite of what most people think you do in order to make money. But essentially, that's what trend followers do. But I'm just thinking, how do you bridge the gap when it comes to machine learning to the investor? Because we know that investors are very good at saying no, thank you if it's something that they don't understand rather than admitting that they don't understand it. So I can imagine that, you know, when, when you go into your world, which is a bit more complex than just basic trend following, that this is quite a challenge. How do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? I think as an industry, I think we are guilty of, you know, we're guilty of not making enough effort to help our investors understand what we do. The, 
what is the saying? You know, we should be able to explain what we do to a six-year-old grad student, call it what you will. But if you can't explain it simply enough, then you don't truly understand it. Um, I think sometimes there's an element of, of that in this industry. And I think there's an element of feeling one doesn't want to disclose what it is that we do, because if investors knew that it it could be written down on a piece of paper they wouldn't invest because they wouldn't believe it was worth paying for well you know i challenge any manager not to be able to write down what he does on one side of a4 mm. and giving that just to an investor doesn't destroy the purpose of that business i think it's quite the opposite it makes the investor understand that the manager can articulate what he does you know we could write down we're all using the same ingredients um, it's but the difference is the implementation mm. and how that is 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 managed um, I, I could have the recipe from a Michelin-starred restaurant and I couldn't produce their food, nor would I want to. Um, so machine learning is putting, um, for us at least, it means having an amount of adaptability within the quantities and relative quantities of the ingredients that we use within our recipe so we um we we model i mean i don't know if we're getting ahead of ourselves here neil no, but no, we, that's fine let's go ahead um you know for us we believe that there are you know we forecast asset prices we don't forecast the prices directly i think they're very noisy um, we know that markets have different regimes in some regimes there are some drivers of markets have more influence than in other regimes different drivers have more influence. So we try and model the underlying drivers of price returns. And we model a number of different drivers. And we recognize that in some markets, you need to weight more, some drivers more highly than others. Mm. Okay? Uh, and, and it's the adaptability, the weighting of those drivers for us where machine learning comes, comes into it. Sure. Um, I have an example. Um, you know, prices are very noisy. It's hard sometimes to see what going, what's going on. Um, but if you, if we knew the structure, if we knew exactly how prices were driven, life would be very easy. So I was reminded of mobile phones. Mobile phones have a really weak signal, and you're trying to transmit your phone call in a very noisy environment. And how do how do they deal with that? Well, what they do, they say, well, I'm not going to transmit. Just on, you know, if you think about dialing your your old radio in the old days, you got crackles and hiss on some channels. Well, the same with mobile phones. So what they do is they transmit across many, many channels. And they will move from channel A, you know, channel one to five to ten to three to seven to twenty and so on. And they will skip between channels just for a few milliseconds at a time, skipping between. So they only are exposed to noise on any one channel for a certain period. And in addition, anybody listening on just one channel wouldn't hear the mobile phone call. It's skipping around, only there for a very brief instant. And that technology came out of um, covert uh, security, covert transmission in, in the military, where they were trying to move quickly between channels in a, in a pseudo-random way to avoid eavesdroppers. But the effect is that at any one channel, the noise has very little influence. So if you listened on channel one, you really wouldn't hear this mo mobile phone call. It just sounds like noise in the background. Mm. But if you know the structure, if you know the sequence that it's going to hop between channels, you can reconstruct that phone call. And that's what the base station and the handset do. They, ha they know the model 
the structure of this, what looks like random data. If we know the structure of what drives the price returns of markets, then that's what we should be modeling. And that's what we'll have much more success at forecasting. Um, we know markets move over time. They evolve, they change. We have different regimes, risk on, risk off, if you want to call it like that. Different regimes for different points in the economic cycle. Markets behave differently when rates are high than when they're low, when we have high inflation or low inflation. And so you know, we want to have the ability to adapt to those different regimes all within the system. Mm. that's machine learning for us sure well i certainly learned a lot more about mobile phones just from listening to that so i appreciate i appreciate that i do wish <laughs> i do wish however that our skype co uh, connection today uh, would have a few more um, uh, lines that they could jump through because it's a bit static so i apologize for that to the to the listeners but we're doing our best to clean it up um, when we have finished uh, the recording today now Andrew, we're going to talk about what I um, what what you have is called the, the systematic global macro program. But I just want to take the opportunity to congratulate you because I know you just finished your first three years of of live trading, and that's a, that's a good milestone. And and I think many investors uh, will um, you know take things a bit more serious once you've put the first three years of actual trading behind you. Even though, of course. As I mentioned it before, and as people would have realized by now, you are in yourself and your team, you know, very experienced uh, in this business. Now, let's jump to the next topic because it relates a little bit to that. And it's 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 your organization. Um, I would like for you to talk a little bit about uh, sort of the challenges you face in, in trading the things you do, um, but also how you obviously have taken all the, the the knowledge of managing a very large portfolio with a big team and and how you're actually able to and I'm putting words in your mouth but I'm imagining you're pretty much capable of doing exactly the same today in in a different uh, and 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 a smaller entrepreneurial environment talk to me a little bit about how you you know have organized yourself to to be able to do so thank you um this when we built CCM it was But we certainly learnt from our experience uh, in the integrated model trading team at HSBC. And as I said earlier, we, we built a team and a business from zero. Um, so that was you know, all the complexity of all the, all the, all the business uh, issues, the sales channel development, but all the technology, everything from collecting data, running models, building portfolios, sending orders to market, dealing, we would trade trade over a billion dollars a day of, of currency and aggregating liquidity from multiple sources to minimize market impact and all the technology that we had to build around that. Um, we bring with, we brought with us that experience and it's certainly the second time or third time round, it's much easier. Mm. Um, you know, it took us, two years of hard work from the day we started CCM to the day we started trading. Sure. Um, certainly we had to, you know, wait for regulatory licenses to go through, but there was a lot of technology and infrastructure and so forth to build. Um, but we've built a much more comprehensive system here. Um, the, you know, the approach is much more complex and sophisticated than what we used previously. But the complexity is managed through technology, so complexity doesn't necessarily 
you know, me translate into increased headcount or, 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 or difficulty of applying that. Um, you know, the world of investment management has become far simpler. Um, you know, if I look back, there's been a lot of changes over the last 10, 15 years. I think some techniques have become much broadly uh, known. Um, uh, sophisticated libraries have become more widely available. There's less need for people to, to hand roll solutions. Um, that's made it far easier for people to get started. Um, I think it's also made it far more challenging for managers who are not adapting and, and in continuously improving their process. We can go and buy a book on Amazon this afternoon on trend following, and I'm sure that will produce a model which is relatively good at trend following in in markets that are conducive to that. Um, but it is important to continuously moving up the sophistication spectrum um, to maintain, uh, to use you know, the latest techniques to stay ahead of the pack. Um, so it is a lot easier today than it was 10 years ago to build a business. It's still hard to build a business that delivers high quality risk adjusted returns, however. Sure. No, very true. So which functions do you have sort of um, in-house, uh, if I can call it that? And, and is there anything in being efficient today um, and, and having set up CCM, is there anything that you decided to outsource of what you do or how do you manage that? Yeah, I mean, we we spent, um, so we're three years old by track record. Mm -hmm. And um, as we approached the end of our second year, we made uh, a big push to uh, make ourselves uh, accessible by a wider audience of investors. Okay. Um, we we brought on board uh, a COO, a very experienced COO, mm -hmm. to lead the um, development of all the business processes that are necessary um, to support institutional investors. Sure. Uh, we also brought on board a dedicated salesperson and uh, received early this year our U.S. regulatory license. Um, so there's some things that have to be done in-house, sure. so all the research development, uh, software and systems, uh, all the business management's done in-house, legal compliance, we have external advisors, obviously. Sure. Um, in terms of hardware and infrastructure, that is a business risk for us. Um, it's hard to run technology well and it's something that we believe can be delegated to others. So everything we run here is it runs in uh, one primary and a, a secondary failover data center. Um, we have dual redundant systems um, within the office here. We have you know, we have PCs, we have technology for for software development and email and so forth. But anything related to production exists in in a robust environment, and I think that's. You know, that's important. It's what it's what institutional investors expect. So we have a fully distributed and um, you know, production quality infrastructure, just as we would have had in the bank. Um, sure. Fifteen years ago, that was hard for an early stage manager to produce. Much easier these days. Um, likewise, one of the great benefits of working, you know, working with with Ian, my co-founder and CTO, he came. You know, he came by a similar route to Cambridge engineer, military aircraft. He's a he's a software guy through and through. You know, you could buy games he wrote um, on the high street. 
when he uh, when he was a teenager, he was writing games for for the big software companies. This is his background. I'm working in real time software systems, so um, visual recognition for autonomous aircraft. When he was at Brashera Space, and you know, he's been working in the investment space since 2007 when he joined me at HSBC, and he brings with him commercial real time software development experience, and that means that we're a small firm but our systems and processes are top notch. Sure. Whether that be um, continuous testing, um, automatic deployments of code, um, database design and so forth and so forth. Um, so one can be small and, and it's the way one approaches the problem. We have built the business with a foundation for growth from the beginning. Um, you know, it's easy to build a strategy find investor interest and realize that actually one then needs to start building the infrastructure for growth to support those investors to manage multiple accounts, to have the safety around the implementation of the business that investors expect. And we've built that from the beginning for growth as we saw the benefits of doing that at HSBC. Sure, sure. A slightly uh, different question, but also related to this, uh, just to round off the thing about organization. I mean, you've built a couple of teams before. Um, do you have a particular culture that you try and and, and create uh, with the teams and, and businesses that you uh, built? And, and, and how do you build a strong culture? Uh, because I can see there's a... You mentioned Ian. There's some continuity there. You've been working together for a number of years, and uh, so uh, you know. And and it takes you know it takes work to to uh, you know you can put people together, but actually building a strong culture between people is is not necessarily uh, so easy. So uh, how do you how do you do that? I mean, we've it, we've always believed in a, a collegiate environment, a free exchange of. Of, of ideas and an open sharing of knowledge. Um, it's very easy to exist in silos, uh, particularly once a team gets beyond a, a small size. And I think it's often the case, teams coming from an investment banking culture where there is uh, a lot of benefit in being siloed, um, find it hard to integrate into a collegiate environment. But the value is greater than the sum of the parts, the sharing of ideas. One of the great things about the academic, you know, the academic environment and working with the team here is it, it, it's a given that people will challenge and um, thrive off the, the dialogue that goes on when one's um, trying to explore and, uh, and, and develop new ideas. And that's what we've tried to do here. Um, you know, we are we are relatively small. We are four full-time members of staff, and we have we have three three people in the university currently, a professor and and two of his research team um, that are formally engaged, and we have other members of the university doing project work. Um, and I would expect that as we grow, we will continue to bring people in who have strong technical skills, but most importantly, have that that sharing of knowledge and. Uh, at the core of of how they how they operate, um, I don't believe it's necessary to bring people from a finance area. Um, we're in Cambridge. We're forty five minutes from the centre of London here, um, but it's Cambridge is not well known for its finance community, 
and I don't see that as a disadvantage. Um, you know, we we need to use a different approach uh, than our competitors. Otherwise, we'll get the same outcome. We we want to use new ideas to think about problems, and I think that's you know one of our strengths that we, from first principles, have tried to build an investment management business uh, without uh, creating a a sort of a me too or copy of someone else's approach otherwise we'll get the same outcomes um sure that's true i mean speaking of outcomes the next sort of area i'd like to talk a little bit about is sort of track record and i don't mean numbers month by month but i just mean how do you how do you show investors enough data given the fact that you know now you have three years of of track and and how so how do you help investors get an in-depth understanding of of the program and how it's going to cope in different environments given the fact that actually the last well the last three years have been quite interesting because we've had a a 2013 was a a, as a pretty bad year for ctas uh, or systematic traders uh, 2014 was probably one of the best years we've had in a very long time. And 2015 is shaping up to be somewhat tricky, I think, for, for most people. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you best manage that uh, and, and give investors um, whatever comfort they need uh, with a relatively short life track, or at least at this stage? It's a good question. And I think actually what investors... I believe that investors are trying to buy is skill. Mm-hmm. Um, but their challenge is how to measure skill when all they can observe is performance. Yeah. And performance is a blend of skill and luck. And markets, as we've said, change. And a skillful team will continue to demonstrate over time its ability to make the necessary changes and innovation to adapt to those changing conditions and continue to give to deliver good performance. So how can an investor invest in skill? Well, he can look at the numbers. He can look at the numbers and see whether they um, are consistent with his understanding of what the invest the manager says he does. He should understand from the investor, from the manager, what he does, and more importantly, why he does it, and to see whether it makes sense. And why has he chosen to do what he does? Too many, uh, I think many investors will ask what you do, but not why. And if they can understand what you do, then they can understand whether it will work in market conditions A or B and C. The track record, it's a very poor, it's a very poor instrument to use uh, to judge the quality of that manager. So as the institutional investors do, they need to spend time with the manager to understand the manager, understand the team, the process, and whether there's evidence in the past, not just that three-year track record, but evidence in the past of um, the ability of that manager to demonstrate skill. Does he bring the necessary skills to deliver what he claims he can deliver? And has he demonstrated in the past that he's, he's done that effectively? Sure. Um, no, I think that makes sense. Um, 
Just our curiosity, that I'm sure you probably traded the the, the, the program uh, in some shape or form uh, whilst developing it, and certainly you obviously have a a lot of experience in the let's call it the approach or the process that you're applying. Um, but because the markets have been so different uh, since we had the financial crisis, uh, is your program or is the process behaving as you expect? I mean, are you are you delivering? kind of the the return risk profile that that you uh, would expect yes within what we expect but it is differently it is different than it has been um okay. so the the risk premia that are being harvested by uh, managers in the managed futures cta space can be harvested in a variety of ways they can be harvested uh, and let's be clear here we're not trading some some transient we are not trading some transient effects some some end of day market close timing uh, abnormality you know we're not using some mispricing um algorithm that uh, is going to be arbitraged away um if there is a large macro factor which is driving prices our involvement in that market our removing of the premium by taking a position doesn't cause that that risk that risk premium to go away what has changed though as i look back over i look back to new york and when we were starting to to offer some of our proprietary trading strategies out to the high net worth space and we raised three quarters of a billion dollars in about nine months um uh, uh, selling packaged early stage quantitative systematic products when i was in new york and If I look back then, the techniques that worked then still work now, but the risk-adjusted return expectation today is far, far lower. And I think that's a reflection of the uh, of a few things, but primarily the space has become much more crowded. Um, mm -hmm. It is much easier for um, relatively you know, quantitative, numerate, uh, individual even, to buy a book learn about the market and implement some relatively basic techniques with enough people doing that on scale then that starts to become a crowded market and when market conditions change and everybody runs for the door then the prices are just accordingly and that delivers um a quite a poor a quite a poor risk outcome so the techniques that need to be used today to harvest those premium need to be more sophisticated need to focus more on controlling risk than perhaps used to be maybe maybe a secondary consideration a number of years ago mm. um so what has happened if i look back over 15 years the risk premium have been constantly there but the method used to extract that is is has got to, has grown up i'll give you a hard example sure um in currencies one could borrow in yen at at zero and convert that into australian dollars and lend that at shall we say 10% 15 years ago sure. put that in the bottom drawer come back in a year and you've made 10% interest rate differential and 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 something on the currency move as well and it may have been a slightly hairier couple of days of a year when the currency might have moved against you but in the long run that cross currency carry trade was was very profitable those days of you know that is a A, a short gamma trade. It's a trade that earns a small risk premium every day and that has shocks every so often. The frequency of those shocks and the size of those shocks has increased over time. 
as people are running to the door to liquidate passive carry trades like that. Whether they be passive carry trades in the Australian dollar versus the yen, or whether it be passive carry trades in curve roll downs in interest rates or or commodity trades, passive trades, relatively easy to access trades, simple trend following trades have become a much less satisfactory um, technique than they once were. Mm. And if you go back, I mean, given all of that and given the fact that you obviously observe clearly the changes in structure of of markets and, and these different risk premia, what would you say, just from a sort of a very top level point of view, what would you say along your journey has been sort of the main discoveries in in dealing with these changes that you've been able then to uh, apply in, in, in your strategy, if I can if I can put it that way. The early days um, of moving from derivative risk management into the systematic or quantitative investment management space were, I think, difficult for me. Mm. Um, I came from a world of, there the, the were, the were maths, there's equations. This is how, how these markets behave. These are how these derivative instruments can be priced. and. It, it's very complicated. There's lots of degrees of freedom of risk in a portfolio, but we sort of understood how to risk manage complex derivative portfolios. And then when, you know, when I started in 2000, looking at what people were doing in the managed futures space, uh, and I was in the US at the time, uh, certainly many people saw the world as a signal, a trade, I go long, I go short. Maybe I'm flat. I have $100. I have 100 markets, $1 in each market. That's my diversification. So it, was, it wasn't it was a continuous space where prices move continuously. I have, you know, I have a discrete signal, long sure. or short. And risk management was, I put a dollar in each of my baskets. Um, and that didn't sit comfortably, you know, with my experience my view of the world. And I think it was when we started to trade um, you know, cash equities at HSBC, when we started to trade equity statile portfolios, we had some 6,000 stocks we would trade and we built long, short portfolios where we were forecasting future moves in these equity markets. It was short-term reversion moves. And we were looking to build a portfolio of long equities against short equities, maximize the reversion effect in that portfolio, but wait and choose the constituents, which equities we held to try and reduce the, the market risk, the market risk we didn't want, the beta, but not just the, the first driver of returns in the market, but the first you know, N risk factors, the first N factors that were driving equity market returns. We insulated ourselves from those by the way we constructed this portfolio. So we left behind the risk we wanted, the expected returns that we'd forecast, and we removed other, you know, other sources of risk. And it was that technique, that technology we've pulled across to the world of managed futures. So we don't generate signals. We generate forecasts. Asset A goes up 10 basis points. Asset B goes down five. And with those forecasts, we can build a portfolio, which means we have a portfolio which has the risks we want, 
the holdings that give us the risks we want and we remove the risks we don't. So instead of having 100 markets, $100 exposed and thinking we're diversified, but actually we're not because currencies, all the risk is the dollar, commodities, well, it's energy, isn't it? And then you've got US rates and so forth. There are relatively few macro drivers of risk, but they appear everywhere. And it looks like you might have a reasonably diversified basket of holdings until there's a shock, correlations go up, it's not diversified as much as you thought. So to take an active approach to managing risk, building a risk model and controlling that portfolio to have the risks you want, that's for us when we saw the way to marry managed futures and the sort of continuous world of, of risk management, and the derivative risk management background I'd come from. Sure. Um, there are a lot of challenges in doing that. Of course. But but that that's sort of the, the nexus of those technologies and where we started. Sure. I want to move on to the um, to sort of the heart of the strategy, namely the program itself. But I do want to pick up on something you just said because I think it's um, I think it's worth touching upon. I mean, I agree with what you uh, what you put forward that in the U.S. back uh, you know 15 years ago. Um, it probably was a relatively simple type of uh, trend following predominantly that people were applying. And I think that the Europeans in general probably took a slightly different approach, made it a bit more, um, quote on, you know, in, in quotation signs, sophisticated by, by doing more things. But on the other hand, if you are trying to be objective, As, as I will try to be now, <laughs> and I have to still give you know, credit to the simpler strategies because I still see managers doing something along those lines being very successful with track records of 20, 30, 40 years with very few down years. It may be a more volatile ride. I, I can't, you know, from memory, I can't judge that. But I don't think the, you know, first sort of, I mean, okay, it's not the first iteration of trend following that maybe is still applied, but some managers have stayed pretty true to the origins of trend following and are doing it with, with still a lot of success. Would you, is, is that a fair observation? I think that's fair. Um, I, I have nothing, uh, no reason to... Um, You know, criticize trend following. It is a very effective strategy. Mm. Um, I think, as you say, the the trend following factor is a strong factor. It exists. It's traded exclusively by some managers. Um, the techniques that they use today will be different from the mm. techniques they used in the past. Um, and it's all in the implementation, isn't it? Sure. As we said before. Um, for us, we trade more than just trend. We yeah. try trend is it's a strategy that captures moves. So if there are no moves, it will bleed. Yeah. Enter trade, leave, enter trade, leave, enter trade, leave, it bleeds. So as a as a strategy, it's a difficult strategy in low volatility markets, in markets which have false breaks, in markets which don't have strong macro themes. And traditionally it has been a very good um uh, strategies combined with equity portfolios which perform sure. perform you know badly in those market conditions but i think a more interesting thing is to look at the return dynamics and say well we have this thing that you know 
I pay I pay a premium every day for the opportunities to capture a trend, but it doesn't happen. And every so often the trend happens and it refunds me for the premium I've paid. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe if we could identify another strategy where I earned a premium every day. Sure. And every so often maybe something happens and I give some of that back. Maybe they will complete complement each other quite well. Mm-hmm. So a carry type strategy compared with a trend type strategy, maybe that makes sense. And and you know, and that's the kind of a thought approach for us. It is a different product. It, the trend product is one product. What we do is is different. Sure, and that's exactly what I wanted to to. to that's why I wanted to sort of gently interrupt you and steer you in that direction because I really would like you for to to tell me, you know, what is the key objective of the program from a really thirty thousand feet uh, down? Um, because that I think you are all already heading in that direction. To deliver high-quality risk-adjusted returns through a diversified uh, method uh, of models of risk management uh, control uh, and drawdown management. But risk-adjusted returns. And below that, we as a manager will use a variety of techniques to do that, but that's what the investor should expect. Sure. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how you've structured the program from a top down um, and why you designed it the way you have in order to deliver those high risk adjusted returns. So, you know, first of all, I mean, our philosophy is that you know, there are drivers of market prices. We can't observe them. We, we may have a sense of what they are. Um, we know that some prices, some asset prices are more sensitive than to, some, to certain factors than other asset price or other assets. Um, the, the factors that are driving prices vary through time. So we know that the, if you want to think of it as such, there's a, a carry factor. Mm-hmm. And carry is the, the passive harvesting of a risk premium through the taking of a spread or risk position. It, it, it collects a premium every day until it doesn't and gives sure. some back. <laughs> um, and we know those strategies work well in a low volatility, volatility stable environments with low uh, event risk. Uh, other strategies work better when markets are more volatile moving, like we talked about trend. Sure. So on that basis, we could build a model for carry, we could build a model for trend, we could build a model for, for value or reversion perhaps. Um, and we could follow these models uh, and use them to forecast an asset. So maybe the euro might be a function of the forecast from carry, a forecast from trend, a forecast from value or reversion. Um, well, in what ratio do we, we blend these different types? Well, Depends on the market regime, doesn't it? And, and that's that's something which, which needs to adapt and uh, and change over time. Um, we build this model, but we, we can't observe this thing we're trying to model. Um, it, it's very noisy. The the forecast coming out of our model doesn't match up very well with um, the thing we're trying to forecast. Um, it's very noisy, this signal. Now, if you go back to engineering, if you're trying to deal with noise in the signal, then there are some well-understood ways to do that. If your system is 
is, is stable, then maybe you can filter some out because you know everything outside some 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 range is is not information, it's noise, we'll filter that out. You may be able to use different types of model and combine them together. Now, if you think of a model as perfect forecast plus some noise, that's model A. And model B has a perfect forecast plus its own noise. And model C, perfect forecast plus its own noise. If you combine them together, you have three sets of perfect forecast and three sets of noise which are not correlated. So the noise tends to diversify or cancel out and you improve your signal to noise ratio. You know, something we were doing at, at British Aerospace was we were looking at machine vision for the auto landing of, of aircraft. And you have the, a camera that sees the runway, uh, which is great. It can see the runway, it can line up, it can land, but it's nighttime. Well, you need a, an infrared camera. What happens if there's some, some bright, there's a fire on the runway? Well, that's not going to work. It's going to disrupt the camera. Maybe you have some radar system as well. So building up a series of different sensors using different techniques, all seeing the same thing, the runway, but with different noise that would interfere in that signal. Combining them all together, you have a composite, which is a much higher quality forecast for the runway environment or, in our case, markets. So we have many models. And we build many forecasts using different techniques um, and across the many different risk factors. And then we combine all those together in a, an ensemble technique, a committee technique to give us the forecast for the asset we're looking to trade. Now, we know market conditions change. We know that over time, the techniques need to improve. We also know over time, the the economic environment changes, yield curves will at some point, they will go up. Um, volatility rise, it will fall. We have rapid changes, risk on, risk off, if you want to think of it as such. Uh, some models work well in some environments, not in others. So we need to have a dynamic nature there to selecting which models we place emphasis in and, and which ones not. You know, one of the, the great arguments for systematic approach to investment management is its repeatability. Uh, the fact you can run a back test, you can talk about what people might expect. It's not subject to the human implementation. Obviously, discretionary management has a process. It's implemented in a more loose way, perhaps, by a human, um, where systematic is implemented, hopefully, in a very rigorous way in code. Uh, that's a real strength. But it's also a massive weakness of the approach if it is not dynamic. You know, a, a systematic manager can see his portfolio. He can see sometimes it isn't working. He can see a particular model is causing a problem. But what can he do? Does he pull the lever and turn it off? Well, that's discretionary intervention. Does he have an investment committee meeting and pull the lever and turn it off? And then it's discretionary intervention by committee. Or does he leave that model in the portfolio? for later, for when it starts working again, for when it's the right market conditions and have the whole system recognize that that model is no longer, its marginal contribution has decreased and it starts to turn itself off. And that is the learning aspect, the dynamic aspect to what we do. Sure, sure. So, so we, we're forecasting markets. Yep. And we'll get into that maybe in a little bit more detail. I wanted to ask you, how many markets, because you clearly believe in diversification uh, in terms of models, that's for sure, and 
and and time frames I, I'm, I'm assuming but how many markets do you trade and um, and do you cover all sectors financials you know FX commodities how does that portfolio look like when it gets to the construction of of, of the portfolio um, we're to a large extent we're we're market agnostic in that the you know, the, the factors that we're trading appear you know appear across all markets. Um, the recent oil moves have have appeared very strikingly in in a variety of different currencies, whether that's you know Canada and its exposure to tar sands or or in the Norwegian currency. Um, so we're we're largely agnostic to the to the assets we trade, uh, so asset markets we trade. We trade about sixty markets at the present time. We uh, we started out not trading uh, the commodity markets, and that was a decision we took based on on the account size when we started and the feedback we've had from investors subsequently is that it's unusual to see a commodity-less portfolio and for those investors that want a commodity-less portfolio they gain a great deal of comfort that um, we're not trying to carve commodities out of an existing track record for them but today 60 markets as we grow we would expect to extend that and we would trade a larger range of markets and, and spreads within those markets as well. Sure. You mentioned the type of strategies and model uh, you use, and then uh, it is clear that then the forecast and then the selection and weighting of these different uh, models into the position for each market becomes very uh, important. Talk to me a little bit about the, 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 the forecast uh You know, how long do you try to forecast? Um, maybe you want to talk. I mean, I, I I noticed the word you used, ensemble method. I don't know whether that's just a fancy word because I've heard someone else use the same word and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I fully understand, you know, its importance, if it is important or whether it just means everybody has a vote. So maybe you can educate me and enlighten our audience a little bit on that as well. Sure. I mean, ensemble methods in, in the sort of classical machine learning sense has a, you know, as a certain, I suppose, strict definition. I'm not sure, you know, how, how other people see that. We generate some 5,000 forecasts a day. Wow. Across a lot. the markets we trade. Yeah, 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 it's it's a lot, but it's a technology problem. Sure, sure. And so we have quite a lot of data. And from the that data, we can look at the history of a model and look at its forecast history and what the realized returns of the market it was trying to forecast and look at did it do a good job can i just can i just search interrupt i just want to make sure i understand so the 5000 forecast is that because you have 5000 different model market combinations and each of them make a little forecast um yes but to be clear the in, in an ideal world every uh, model when forecasting market a would have error or noise which was zero correlation to the error coming out of model b on that market coming out of model c so when you combine them together you maximum diversification effect but in practice they're not truly independent sure. because you know the, the the drivers of the noise can appear in many different places you know sure. what is that noise that so but but, but essentially yes 
Okay. Well, go back. I interrupted you, so please continue with your explanation of, of the forecast method and how yeah. it all evolves in the process. So we have some 5,000 data points a day. And what we're trying to do is identify how well that model is doing. So if we, if we asked a person what his forecast was for you know, the S&P for the end of the year, and he said 10,000, then we'd probably suspect you know, uh, his judgment was was quite poor. Um, if we, you know, he, he, he forecast it would be the same price as we closed on Friday, then we might think his judgment was better. So when, when, we, when we ask somebody a question, we make a decision about the quality of the answer. Sometimes that quality of the answer is based on how high quality of that individual's answer has been previously. So really what we want when we ask a model for a forecast is, what is your forecast? And what level of confidence do I have in the answer you gave me? So we don't ask models for forecasts. We ask them for both their answer, their forecast, plus the uncertainty or confidence that they have in that. And knowing that, we know how to combine all these forecasts together to create a single combined forecast for the asset. So let's think of a practical real world example. You are the manager of a proprietary trading desk. You have 10 people on the desk. They all trade 10 markets each. You have capital you need to allocate to members of that desk. Well, you're more, more most experienced trader trading the e most profitable market this year, US equities, gets the biggest allocation. And the least experienced trader, the new graduate on the desk um, trading Japan gets the you know, a very difficult market gets the least allocation. You make a judgment based on the underlying competence of that model and the market on which he's trading when you decide to allocate capital. And in a similar way, we can do a, th a similar thing here. So when we look at the forecast coming out of our model, we look at the performance of the model itself. We also look at the performance of that model applied to that market. So how might the system, what are the failure modes of the system? Well, we know that carry models, we were talking about before, carry models work and then they don't for a while and then they'll work again. When they stop working, they tend to stop working across a wide variety of assets. And when they stop working, different types of carry model stop working across a wide variety of assets. So you've got quite a lot of potential information there that you can use. There's some grouping, some structure, some knowledge of how markets behave that you can take into account when trying to learn whether this forecast is going to perform well tomorrow. You know, if, if a carry model on asset A, one day goes by and you have one more data point. Can't do a lot with one data point. But if you look across the cross section of carry models and the cross-section of markets on which you apply them, you potentially have hundreds of data points every day that you can use to help learn whether carry models on those assets is going to perform well tomorrow. And it's that approach of understanding the drivers of the uh, performance of the models, the drivers of the market, that domain knowledge, that knowledge of the investment process, using that as a starting point uh, to apply dynamic or machine learning techniques is a key because it's it's 
transform the problem from being here's 5,000 data points and 10 years of history, go and work that out, to let me give you some strong hints of what is the system underneath that's driving this data. And we talked before about the importance of, um, in finance, understanding what the system is that's driving the data, because without that, it's just a very noisy data problem sure. that machine learning techniques don't work well on. So to answer your question, ensemble techniques, it's a dynamic mechanism allocating across a committee or a pool of forecast supplied to assets to generate a single combined forecast for each of the assets. Sure. So I'm going to try and make it even more simple so that... Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.